Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. I want to thank everybody for joining today. Just to give a brief introduction of the topic and of our panelists. <clears throat> First, what are we about today? The Office of Foreign Assets Control uh, decision to sanction something called Tornado Cash. What is Tornado Cash? If you're interested in cryptocurrency, if you're not, I'll give a basic discussion of it, and then I'll give our panelists a chance to clean up my basic introduction with their expertise and their knowledge of what's going on here. If you use Ethereum, if you use Bitcoin, if you use other cryptocurrencies, you might be familiar with the idea behind them. There are tokens. You can trade them on public blockchains, essentially public ledgers. The thing about cryptocurrency, particularly Bitcoin, is it's public. The public keys are public and it is something called pseudonymous. That means that your transactions are associated with a public key. A public key is a string of numbers and letters. If no one knows your public key, then they don't know the things you're doing on the blockchain. If you're making payments, uh, if you're taking payments from other people, if you're storing assets on the blockchain, people don't know if they don't know your public key, what you're doing. But the moment they learn the identity of your public key, then they have the equivalent of access to your bank account and access to your credit card statement because they can use that public key, their knowledge of your public key to then see on the public record of the blockchain, everything you've ever done with assets on the blockchain, they can see the assets that you currently hold. So in order to solve this problem, this privacy problem, a number of tools have been invented by people, um, by, by developers, by coders working on blockchains. One of these tools was something called Tornado Cash. The idea behind Tornado Cash is Tornado Cash is smart contract code. It was attached to the Ethereum blockchain. It was implemented on the Ethereum blockchain. And you could take Ethereum, you could take ETH that you might have bought, let's say, at FTX or at Coinbase or wherever, and you could take it to the Tornado Cash smart contract code. And when you did so, when you uh, sent it to that smart contract address, you were given an exchange a note. And then you could give uh, back that note in exchange for Ethereum. But the key function of the Tornado Cash smart contract code was it would uh, cut the transaction history from your future transactions. So it's like if somebody gave you a US dollar that uh, um, was associated with you for some reason, you could exchange it with someone else for a different dollar. Dollars are fungible. And you could have this property of fungibility going forward. Now, of course, you still had, if you, in the future, a new public key associated with that Ethereum. If anybody could learn it, then they could learn your transactions. But that transaction history cutter cutting was helpful because if you onboarded in some way through some central intermediary, like a central exchange, they have your information as you register with that platform. But be, be, you could use it, the uh, Tornado Cash smart contract code to cut that transaction history. And therefore, those exchanges couldn't monitor your future transactions or anyone who learned by way of those exchanges, including we recently learned one way in which exchange information can become public or intermediary information can become public. We've seen the bankruptcy of a of an intermediary called Celsius in which the transaction history on the exchange 
was included in the bankruptcy filing. So in the future, that risk has become apparent to all of us that if we're buying and selling crypto on a central exchange, that could be one way in which the public learns about your public key. And therefore, these privacy tools are more and more necessary. So the other thing about Tornado Cash is it was used by bad guys to some extent, including prominently North Korea. I think the estimates from forensics firms like Chainalysis are somewhere between, between 10 to 20% of the transactions on Tornado Cash involve North Korean hackers trying to wash their money. But the Tornado Cash contra smart contract code was also used by legitimate individuals. And I think at one point, one of the largest users was Vitalik Buterin, one of the founders of Ethereum, and he used it to maintain privacy in his use of ETH. So along comes the Treasury Department, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, sanctions Tornado Cash. And not only did they sanction addresses associated with Tornado Cash, but they sanctioned, quote unquote, Tornado Cash. What does that mean? It seems like I think the best interpretation of what they were trying to do is they were sanctioning code itself, which is kind of like if OFAC came along and said, you know what, we hereby sanction Microsoft Excel. And therefore, anybody using Microsoft Excel is sanctioned any money that is or sanctioning Quicken, let's say some program that handles and manages money. Anybody whose money was managed by Quicken, that money is frozen, right? Kind of a ridiculous outcome. There is litigation going on against the Treasury Department at OFAC right now. Some employees at Coin Center have brought litigation. Uh, and the, um, <clears throat> so, sorry, some employees at Coinbase have brought litigation. And Coin Center has brought litigation, both challenging the OFAC's authority uh, to sanction Tornado Cash. Uh, there are free speech issues involved. There's also statutory authorization issues involved because the statute and the executive order give OFAC the power to sanction individuals and groups of individuals and entities, business entities. But there's nowhere in the statute that the OFAC gets the authority to sanction smart contract code, to sanction code language itself. Um, so we'll see how those litigation issues play out. This is an interesting topic to me because it's also one of those topics where um, groups very active in the federal society tend to disagree, right? We've all often had debates between libertarians and conservatives within the federal society as a debating society. So this is one of those interesting topics. I first came up in the federal society in uh, just after 9-11. So, and I remember a lot of at the National Lawyers Convention and student chapters, a lot of debates about the Patriot Act and particularly the financial surveillance provisions of the Patriot Act. A lot of interesting debates between libertarians and conservatives about the Patriot Act. I think this brings up some of the same issues. Uh, and, and, and that's why uh, I thought, you know what, it'd be a great idea. Let me find the, the smartest people I know on this issue, put them all on a webinar, and we'll talk about this issue and kind of flush out all the issues involved from financial privacy, the legal issues, uh, AML, KYC, which is short for anti-money laundering and New York customer rules that have traditionally applied to banks, but they're now being increasingly applied to cryptocurrency in ways that don't quite fit, particularly because so much of what happens in cryptocurrency is decentralized and doesn't involve centralized institutions. And those AML KYC issues are kind of corollary to these OFAC issues, these two agencies at the Treasury Department that do different things, but are oftentimes focusing on the same, a lot of the same policy issues. So that's where we are, that's my introduction, probably inartful, uh, hopefully tease up our panelists coming in and kind of tell me, tell me where I where I missed a little bit in that description. But that's the basics of where we are. So uh, I want to introduce our terrific panel. I'm so excited to have you all to, to uh, have a discussion today. Paul Brigner joins us. 
uh, from the Electric Coin Company. Paul is the head of strategic and global advocacy for the Electric Coin Company. The Electric Coin Company is a, a company that helps to build and develop the Zcash ecosystem. One of my favorite privacy. Uh, some people call it privacy token, but I know I, th I think the explanation is a little bit bigger than that. It's a it's a, a fork of the. Uh, uh, let, let me just basically say it's a fork of the Bitcoin blockchain that is privacy focused, that has privacy at its core. Uh, and some of the founders, including Zuko Wilcox, were originally very involved in the early days, the very earliest days of uh, of, of Bitcoin. And, uh, and and its founder, indeed, I think was uh, often is proud to say he was the first to blog about Bitcoin. Um, so it's great to have your perspective here, Paul, today. Uh, Michael Mosier joins us from Espresso Systems. Uh, Michael was the former acting head of FinCEN, so the point person at the Treasury Department for AML KYC. And on the other hand, he's a, he's a, he's a crypto guy. So uh, perfect perspective to have today, uh, knowledgeable about the internal workings of Treasury, AML KYC issues and OFAC issues from serving as acting head of FinCEN, but also developing uh, privacy uh, respecting, but also uh, uh, compliance uh, programs within the crypto native economy. So we'd love to learn more about that today. Mike, um, Professor Kevin War uh, War Warbach joins us from uh, the uh, Penn uh, Business School, uh, the, the, the Department of Business and Legal Ethics at uh, the uh, University of Pennsylvania Wharton Business School. Um, Kevin is uh, one of my favorite professors. I'm a graduate of his online program in the economics of blockchain. And uh, I learned a terrific amount from that program and I recommend all our listeners uh, take it. Um, all right, so here we go. We've got everyone. Uh, let me jump in and just give uh, folks a chance. Um, do do y'all wanna jump in and just kind of maybe clean up my initial discussion, my initial framing? I'm sure I missed some pieces. Uh, let me turn it over to Mike. Is there anything that on the technical side that our audience needs to learn a little more about? Uh, actually, JW, no, I thought it was perfect. Uh, there was a perfect lay down of it. And, um, and, and the thing that I might draw some attention to just from the, having been in treasury for some of the solicit finance work is I think you noted um, appropriately that the blockchain analytics companies assessed that the uh, sort of illicit, identifiably North Korean illicit amounts were maybe maximum 20 to 30%, um, which is certainly at a, at a gross level of, of value is, is meaningful to like the North Korean regime. But it's also important to look at collateral impact when you're looking at like easily 70% of the use being legitimate or at least not identifiably um, a threat or supporting uh, an authoritarian regime or something like that. So um, I think it's that collateral impact piece that that set off a lot of the debate, including, I think, in some way, proving the use case that privacy is a really important thing to folks uh, operating on the blockchain with public ledgers, um, where even what you what Treasury deems is like really horrible, which and certainly supporting an authoritarian regime is an issue, um, had 70 plus percent use that didn't seem identifiably bad. And I think that's a meaningful statement uh, that, there, that we, we absolutely have to have privacy in this space, like sort of full stop. And then we can have lots of discussion about, you know, how the weighing should have been on the collateral impacts and, 
and was this even the right tool to use? Um, but I just think that's a, it's important to level set up front, um, about that piece. Um, let me turn it over to Paul. Uh, Paul, um, I am, uh, I'm a, I, you know, I play around with all the privacy technology. I try to grab it all, play it around with it. And I've fallen in love with some of them like Zcash. Should I be worried about Zcash? Um, how is the position of privacy tokens a little bit different perhaps than privacy tools? Tornado Cash was a privacy tool. Um, and some privacy tools have identifiable intermediaries like Bitcoin mixers. Some don't even on Bitcoin, like uh, Bitcoin Whirlpool. Um, kind of has an intermediary, but kind of not kind of could take on a life of its own, even if the various wallets associated with it were no longer working. Um, how worried should I be? How, how, how worried are you? Um, and, uh, what other you know, perspective can you share with us? Well, first, thank you, JW, for allowing me to be here. Thank you to the Federal Society. This is quite a treat to be on this webinar with, uh, really distinguished panelists. So, Thank you for this opportunity. And should you be worried? I think absolutely you should be worried. We should all be worried. This is what I perceive as a direct attack on the ability to have privacy in the brand new cryptocurrency economic world. And this tool, as has been pointed out, was used by a lot of legitimate actors. And that's some of the situations that are being highlighted in the cases that Coin Center is bringing, for example, with the ability for Coin Center to accept donations anonymously through tools like this, or for individuals to be able to raise money for the war effort and to support Ukraine, such that they would not be identified and might have retribution from the Russian government. This has a lot of very important legitimate uses and it goes to a very central issue, and that is whether or not privacy is required to have economic freedom. And I think that is something that would resonate with a lot of Federalist Society members. And it's actually at the core of our mission at Electric Coin Company is to develop Zcash to contribute to, to support a fair and open currency to protect the freedom, dignity, consent, and security of all people. So what we have tried to do is to create a digital cash that has the privacy mechanisms similar, different as you pointed out, but quite similar to what was available through Tornado Cash. In fact, the electric coin company is kind of, well, we are the pioneer of uh, zero knowledge proof technology, the technology that was used in Tornado Cash. And in fact, they borrowed our Coinbase, I mean, our, yes, our, our coin, our, um, source code, our source code base in order to create that. So um, absolutely, should you be worried? And we can get into this in more detail, but the, the reason why that it is even more concerning is that this is in legal terms, in my view, an ultra virus action on the part of this government agency. If there's no authority to back up this action, then what is the limit to their power? Where will they stop? Will they come after Zcash or will they come after something else? citing this power that they have that is actually, you know, not, uh, in, in their view, constrained to entities and persons and foreign actors as, as the statute outlines. Uh, so that's, that's my start. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. And, and this brings in, um, <clears throat> I've heard a lot of folks who are 
leaders in in specifically not only crypto privacy but just generally encryption have drawn an analogy to the to the encryption wars of the 80s and 90s and for folks that don't know that history that goes back a, a long way essentially it boils down to this um it used to be that the NSA and the government kind of had a monopoly on encryption the, the process of encrypting information of Secret codes. Codes are cool, right? We all like codes. And we all, a lot of people probably have played around with a basic Caesar cipher. Um, you know, A and A becomes B, B becomes C, D becomes E. When you're a kid, you, you know, you do this cipher and you send messages to your friends. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I was the only nerd who did that. But um, the federal government took a position in the 80s and 90s saying, uh, look, more sophisticated encryption than that, uh, encryption for 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 uh, commu computer commu communications, the emerging Internet. Uh, the federal government said encryption is a is a uh, what is it is it is an armament It's treated like Munition. an armament. Statute, right. Yeah. Ammunition. Sorry. Ammunition. That's right. Uh, and uh, went after Phil Zimmerman and made his life very difficult for a number of years. And eventually he won. And now the government has flipped and the government says, look, if you're going to have sensitive information about kids, about financial stuff, you got to have uh, encrypted communications. You got to use encrypted communications. Um, uh, yeah. Do you think we're headed for the same kind of thing that eventually the government will flip and say, OK, fine, we get it. It's a national security issue. Um, you need encrypted, secure, private transactions on chain to protect you from North Korean hackers who are trying to steal your crypto. Um, do you think we'll, we'll eventually get there? I certainly have hope that we will. And that is what I fight for every day. Many others do as well. In fact, just last week was Global Encryption Day, and it's sponsored by a large coalition of many international organizations. On October 21st every year, we celebrate this day to remind ourselves that we still have to fight for encryption. And there are places around the world, other governments that are still fighting the crypto wars that we fought here in the US back in the 90s, trying to have ways for to have access to back doors like uh, in end-to-end -end encryption or other methods. But what we're seeing is some of the ways that governments are doing this are kind of not exactly asking for the back door, but a little more subtle than that. And I see the tornado cash sanctions as in fact, that happening here in the US. I think that it is like a direct attack, in my view, on the ability to use encryption, end-to-end -end encryption in financial transactions. So from that perspective, it's very disturbing. And, you know, by the way, I spent half of my career writing software. Before I went to law school and started working in policy, I was a technical person. And uh, so these technical issues are, are very important to me. And um, the ability to write code and how that code can be also viewed as freedom of speech. There's so many different angles and ways that this action is really disturbing uh, that I think there's just a lot for us to continue to dig into here. If they can sanction this code, see, the proponents of this like to say, well, North Korea, therefore, let's raise our hands and let the Treasury do whatever they need to do. But it's a lot, I hear you saying it's a lot more subtle than that. If they can sanction this code, they can sanction any code. And if they can sanction any code, then our online personalities, our online anonymity, our online security is under threat. Um, That's exactly right. There's an incredible amount at risk here. Um, and they could have, they could have sanctioned particular addresses associated with North Korea and not sanctioned Tornado Cash itself. And in fact, um, that has happened. And, and yeah. the crypto community had no issue with that as far as I'm yeah. aware. 
Kevin, I want to go to you. You've, you've been studying crypto for a long time. Uh, you've been writing about crypto for a long time. Uh, you know, you've seen the, the, the dream that is crypto, the use cases that some of which have been, uh, have been proven, some of which are aspiring. You know, the idea that maybe crypto can take over finance and decentralize finance, finance for the people, intermediary rent seekers can be replaced. DeFi has been very powerful and kind of shows that they're pretty, pretty, a lot, lots still to do, but pretty far along in that. Um, uh, the idea of NFTs, of digitizing art and creating markets for art uh, and, and art as identity and art as gatekeeper to social communities. Uh, the idea of decentralizing social media more of an aspiration at this point. It's hard to, it's a long way to go for decentralized crypto-based uh, technology to overtake Twitter and TikTok, but who knows, maybe that'll be possible. Uh, and lots of other ideas around what blockchain could do, what public blockchains can do. If we take away the aspect of anonymity or pseudonymity uh, protected by privacy tools, if we take away that kind of anonymity, the senseless, kind of nature of blockchains, particularly Bitcoin, if we take out that puzzle piece of, of the Jenga game, does it all fall apart? Um, how, how do, what do you think are the broader implications for the dream that is crypto? Yeah, I'd like to take a step back a little bit uh, and, and maybe put, push back on, on some of these things. I I'm, you know, absolutely agree that there are some real concerns about the, the OFAC action on Tornado Cash, and, and it raises some hard questions. Um, but you know, I don't see this as entirely analogous to what happened in the encryption wars, and, and, I, and I definitely don't see it as uh, clearly uh, an effort to eliminate all uh, privacy in, in financial transactions. Um, the, the first general point is uh, technologies have affordances. Uh, technologies create certain capabilities and they impose certain limitations. Um, and what is so exciting and so promising about blockchain technology um, is the potential that it creates. Uh, it allows for you know, what I call in the, the book that I wrote a new architecture of trust, a way to trust in transactions without having to trust a central intermediary. Um, and that is valuable economically, that's value ethically, uh, valuable ethically, it's valuable you know, from, from a business standpoint, um, and in all sorts of other ways, there's all sorts of efficiencies to be gained from having systems that don't rely on uh, central intermediation points. Um, but it's not the same as saying, um, uh, everything is good. There's no limitations. Uh, and that trust goes away as a consideration. Um, there are trade-offs. So for example, there's a fundamental trade-off, which is, is right there. If you go back to the original Satoshi Nakamoto white paper uh, about Bitcoin, um, it very clearly says there's a privacy security trade-off. Um, when you have a bank, the bank keeps your information secret, um, but um, the bank knows who you are. Um, the bank knows your identity uh, and you're trusting the bank. Um, with uh, a blockchain system like Bitcoin, um, there is no central entity in the middle, but then the responsibility is on you uh, to maintain security of your information. Uh, and that's a that's a trade-off. Uh, so one reason that we've had hack after hack, billions of dollars that have been lost in uh, hacks on blockchain systems, most of them are not because the system is insecure. It's because that that private cryptographic key, which you started talking about at the beginning, that's you. Um, and if someone steals my key with a, with a basic system like Bitcoin, then they're me. Uh, and I have to keep the key secure. It's not a bank that keeps it in a vault with all of their security. It's me. Now, there's lots of ways to improve on the technology. 
and enhance the technology to address those issues. There are ways to uh, make the technology more private, things like Zcash. There are things to make it more usable, um, but these are all about engineering design trade-offs um, that are partly about functionality, partly about usability, uh, and partly about implications for regulation and public policy. So the, the first thing is there's a whole set of choices here, and Tornado Cash is a particular set of choices about how to implement the technology. Second thing is regulation. Um, that um, a lot of this technology has grown up uh, with the assumption that it's a total uh, free space to experiment with uh, new kinds of financial technology primitives. That's wonderfully exciting in a lot of ways. The, the degree of experimentation all around the world is incredible. It's allowed, allowed, allowed for tremendous innovation, but that doesn't mean that uh, regulation is totally unnecessary. That doesn't mean if someone commits fraud, um, you mentioned Celsius, there also was the, the Terra Luna collapse, $40 billion disappeared um, in uh, you know a, a matter of days and a system that claimed to be decentralized and actually wasn't. Billions and billions of dollars have been lost through, through fraud and scams and cryptocurrencies. That doesn't mean we should just say to users, well, too bad. You, you just, now we just have to deal with fraud. The same issue comes up in the question that Tornado Cash raises, which is the question of illicit finance. Um, so you know, I always have said to people from the beginning, um, is what we are saying and advocating for the privacy value here, which I agree is real and important, that I should say, you know what, we need to give up on interdiction against terrorism, financing, child sex trafficking, illicit activity. We just have to say it's it's going to be easy for North Korea to get funds because that's necessary to have the benefits we get a blockchain. And no, that's not the case. We don't want to say there's no concern. It's a very legitimate concern. We need to, back to my first point, have the discussion about what are the ways to implement the technology? How is it influenced by regulation? Uh, how is it influenced by private actions that happen by various other parties in the chain? And then let's let's weigh pros and cons that way. Um, so that's really the issue here. Tornado Cash puts the issue very starkly. Um, there's really two sets of issues. There's a relatively easier set of issues around centralized entities. So what information does Coinbase have to collect for me as a user or FTX as a user? They're not a bank, but they're somewhat similar to a bank. I, or, or you, know, uh, you know, if I go and trade on you know, E-Trade or, or Robinhood or something else, they're a centralized entity I'm interacting with where it's easy to see who they are, where they're located, who their management is, and say, maybe let's decide about what they should have to collect. That's actually a challenging issue, but there's been lots of work going on. The harder issue is the tornado cash issue, which is a decentralized system. It's software code that uses what are called smart contracts. It's code that is immutable once it's been uploaded to the blockchain. Um, that is a harder issue, but I would suggest it's still the same issue. Um, let's say that I could write some software code that is wired up on the blockchain that if someone calls a smart contract, it will launch a nuclear missile. And it's immutable. I, I burn the key associated with the smart contract. So I can't touch it. I can't make that contract go away. It's up there. And then I create a website that says big red button, push here to launch the missile. Um, I don't think anyone would say I have no responsibility or government should say, oh, I, I guess we just have to stop being worried about uh, the missile being launched. It's going to happen. No, we should say that is terrible. We want to see how to prevent that. Now, Tornado Cash is not that. But if you agree, there is some point at which 
we need to think about what code allows for once it is implemented on a blockchain and think about how we legitimately address those problems, then we can get into a debate. And I think that's what we need to do with Tornado Cash, not start with the extremes. Either we have no regulation at all of illicit activity, or we have massive total surveillance over all financial transactions. Those are both bad. We can agree on that. Let's talk about the specifics here. You're on great way to, yeah, great way to frame the discussion. Uh, so thanks for, for that, Kevin. Um, and and you know, I, you you you've you've described kind of one guardrail for for the discussion. I would say one of the things I often try to mention in debates about AML KYC, even that predated crypto, um, is uh, I often ask law enforcement people this. I say, um, if if we made a law, if we added to the KYC AML laws that um, your bank account login and credit card login was given to the treasury department. And we all have to give our bank account and credit card logins to the treasury department. And they have the opportunity to peruse it without a warrant and will. We could definitely stop more child trafficking. Uh, we could uh, interdict terrorist finance easier. We could get a lot of bad guys, but I don't think we would ever take that privacy trade off. You know, to be honest, some of them with that, I, that hypo is intended to be like the ridiculous hypo. Everybody says, of course we wouldn't do that. Some law enforcement are like, yeah, we actually would like that. <laughs> But I would say that's on the other end, that that society would never accept that privacy trade-off. So we have to accept at some point that we're willing to accept even really bad consequences to protect financial privacy. Um, so that's that's kind of maybe sets us some guardrails. Mike, if you were at Treasury and the rule, the rule came down, as it seems like happened here uh, from higher levels of State Department of Treasury of the White House, that it seems like, from what I understand, the line level people at OFAC and at FinCEN get it. They're really smart. They've gotten really smart about blockchain technical issues, gotten educated. They have ongoing conversations with people in the community. Um, but it seems like the ruling came on high. Take this down. North, too much North Korean activity. Take it down. And it seems like we ended up there because of that kind of overarching uh, push. If you were at Treasury, that happened. You're trying to figure out a more surgical solution. What would you have done? Yeah, actually, that's a, that's such a great question, JW. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think, and, I, and I'm seeing this with respect to the folks who were at the line level at OFAC because I don't have all the information that they were presented with. But I think from from externally and from from my experience in the in that space, including at OFAC um, before FinCEN, to me, and I don't want to put Tornado Cash in a financial institution bucket specifically because I I think there's legitimate arguments that that there's a, a VPN aspect of this that's a, that's providing a, a very clear functional privacy and security um, format. It's not a trading platform or something like that. Um, but I think I would look at well every other designation that OFAC has done, which required a collateral impact analysis. Um, and I think given that collateral impact analysis, you would say, okay, on the high side, 20 to 30% uh, that seems identifiable illicit. Uh, on the other side, you, you've got 70 to 80% that seems licit. This is going to be uh, a blunt instrument that they could have significant collateral impact. Now let's look at impact on U.S. persons um, who have their own sort of due process rights. Um, and how does that play out? I think part of that analysis would certainly involve open source research, which I'm sure they did. Uh, and you would see, wait a minute, like there a few months ago, tornado cash, whatever that is, whatever we're, we're configuring that, um, 
implemented, I think it was Chainalysis's free API for sanction screening. Um, somebody did something and some, some folks have made some moves towards, towards managing the risk of like, of at least designated addresses. Um, we think that's short of what needed to happen. If this were a bank, if JP Morgan had, you know, 20 to 30% uh, illicit going through it, something would happen. I'm sure. Uh, I don't think they would get designated. They're a U.S. bank. So there's all sorts of other issues around that. But I think even a foreign bank at that level probably wouldn't be designated as a first step. It would be an engagement of some sort, um, given the amount of collateral impact, because you would in the past when OFAC has designated a bank, uh, like in, uh, I think it was Honduras, um, was the first, you know, there's a team on the ground, you're doing collateral impact, um, mitigation immediately with wind down licenses. Um, you know, you, you've got people that have to pay mortgages, people that have their salaries. And I think as you discussed, like there were, there were people that were getting their salaries through tornado cash, uh, not, and nothing illicit. It's just that you didn't want to have, once somebody knows your wallet address, now they can track every time, um, Paul gets a bonus. Hey, congrats, Paul. We'll put it on Twitter. <laughs> uh, you know, like that's just not a, and, and if you're a merchant or a business in any sort, you also can't have everybody sort of reverse engineering. Oh, you know, they've sold a lot this week, but not so much last week. That's just not functional. So I think, um, to me being there, it would be an engagement with, okay, we see personalities out there, including by the way, on Twitter, even there's supposedly enough of a Dow that's been considered in control in a form to be listed as a designated entity. So let's engage with them. Uh, I mean, the CFTC just served UkiDAO, um, which I think has all sorts of questions around that, but clearly they're reachable from a government perspective. So I think given the fact that Tornado Cash had taken a step, you would engage given the clear sort of collateral impacts on it. That That's my perspective. Um, yeah, that's interesting because that that goes back to the distinction that Kevin just drew in his hypothetical that was based on the design of Tornado Cash. So just to, so so um, uh, listeners understand, the first thing that the creators of Tornado Cash did was they broke the code code that makes this thing happen. You put in your Ethereum and then it gets jumbled up with other Ethereum there and then it comes out. Right. That smart contract code that does that. And they so-called burned the admin keys, which is to say take away the the ability to come in and change the code. So it's truly immutable code attached to the Ethereum blockchain. And the founder of it can't change it anymore. That's it. It's there. Um, so the second thing they did was they created a, a website that would link you to that smart contract code. Now, if you're smart enough, you can go access the Ethereum blockchain directly and access the Tornado Cash code directly. Developers know how to do it, but most Everyday retail users wouldn't know how to do that. You can still do that with Tornado Cash. Don't recommend it because it'd be a violation of sanctions and a lot of liability associated with it. But some people are still using Tornado Cash. But most people access it through a website that someone sets up that helps make it easier. So if you Google back in the days when this was still available, the website was still up pre-sanction. Uh, if you Google Tornado Cash, you would get sent to, I think, tornado.cash a website that was a so-called front end and the front end would take you to the smart contract code that could do your privacy feature for you. Uh, now, I, I, as I understand what happened, what, what happened in an attempt to mitigate issues, the front end, the website implemented some sort of uh, uh, maybe a whitelist or blacklist, some way to sort of prevent North Korean and other sanctioned addresses from coming through that end to get to the tornado cash code. But the one thing they couldn't do 
was, you know, uh, North Korea's hackers are smart enough. They don't need the front end. They can go directly to the smart contract code. They know how to get there. And there was no way because of the design of that, there was no way for the initial creators of Tornado Cash to, to, to stop that, to stop that from happening. Um, and that was by design. They wanted that, you know, they, that's why they burned the admin keys. They wanted to be able to say, look, we can't change it now. Um, it's actually Paul? a little more complicated even than that. Uh, okay. I mean, one, one thing to, to, to make sure people understand it, Tornado Cash is not the only anonymizing tool on blockchain. Uh, so, you know, for example, the, you know, uh, Zcash and, and there, there are coins that are explicitly designed to be privacy protecting. There are other mechanisms and mixtures of, of various kinds. Tornado Cash, you know, has become one of the more prominent ones. Um, but, you know, the OFAC designation came after a prior designation of something called Blender, which was um, from the user standpoint, very similar to Tornado Cash, but it was a centralized entity. There was an organization behind it. Um, so, so, you know, similar issues about financial privacy, but not similar issues about um, a smart contract. Um, there's, there's a lot more going on with Tornado Cash. There were a group of developers who were talking about developing this technology for some period of time. They got a grant from a funding agency, uh, you know, a, a, a decentralized um, Ethereum-based uh, grants organization to promote it around financial privacy. Um, they created a, a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, which had its own token, uh, the TORN token, that was somehow associated with the project. Now it doesn't. It doesn't have control. It has some sort of governance rights. Doesn't have control over the smart contracts. But my point is again, there's a lot of different pieces here. And you know, if we want to ask the the narrow question about how does one evaluate this particular OFAC action, that's one issue. And and you know, Mike's points are are, are very good ones. But if we want to step back and ask the more general question, which is what should be going on here. Um, we really should have had um, more engagement, broadly speaking, between people in the community who have a legitimate desire for, for financial privacy um, and people in the government have a little legitimate desire to prevent illicit transactions um, to try to figure out what the um, various solutions are. That's starting actually to happen more because they're even with Tornado Cash. There is a mechanism in Tornado Cash that you can, as a user transacting, produce a receipt which has a cryptographic proof that you can then show and identify to someone what the source of the funds are. Now, you don't have to do that. And that's dependent upon you voluntarily doing it and would be dependent on some other entity that say receiving the funds saying, no, I'm, I'm going to require that of you, that you have to prove to me that this is not coming from, from or to a sanctioned entity, which is not something that you know, Tornado Cash itself does. But this is the, the larger debate which again is a similar debate to what we're having around the centralized, what are called vast virtual asset service providers, how to create a regime that appropriately balances these interests. Paul, do you want to speak to the design of Zcash? And one of the things I think is so neat about Zcash, the, the flexibility for users to use transparent addresses or shielded addresses um, in a way that kind of allows even the most KYC compliant exchange to list Zcash. But at the same time, if I want absolute privacy transacting with with you or with anyone else, I can do shielded to shielded transactions and maintain absolute privacy, both in my owning assets and in my interacting with others who have shielded Zcash addresses. And I can also send you, by the way, one of the cool features I, I often send it to my family, uh, shielded memos on mm -hmm. Zcash. I love yeah. that one, too. So do you want to get into a little bit about my favorite privacy going? Uh, sure, I'd love to. So with Zcash, as you point out, there is a, the ability to send a transaction in a transparent manner, which is 
just like Bitcoin. In fact, we started out as a fork or using the code base of Bitcoin to create Zcash. So we still have that capability, but you do have the option to move into the shielded address pool. So then if you move your transactions shielded to shielded, a shielded address to another shielded address, you essentially have complete privacy in those transactions or all of the details around them are completely encrypted essentially on the blockchain. And the zero knowledge proof is assigned to each of those transactions so that it still works as a blockchain normally would, which is pretty amazing. It's very, very powerful technology. Just want to point out, by the way, though, that the ability to have that shielded transaction really does not have an impact on whether or not you can be KYC AML compliant or not with exchanges. In fact, Gemini, for example, and others allow for shielded transactions in and out of their exchanges because the AML KYC is about the on and off. It's the ability to look at your customer and judge them based on their risk profile and determine if they're an, an uh, illicit actor or not. So I just want to make it very clear that this is a tool for privacy. It's a tool for economic freedom that is compliant and can be compliant with the system that we work in today and, and is actually you know, used broadly in that way. I want to just step back for a minute and point out that as I see this as putting my former software developer hat on, this is kind of a perfect storm because we have this really innovative new blockchain technology, cryptocurrency technology that's come along kind of about the same time that all of our internet architecture has come along over the last few decades. But as it did, it was never secured properly. And there wasn't the incentive to secure it because the hacks that occurred were mostly data breaches that Yes, they were very bad. We all knew they were very bad, but it was very hard to put a dollar amount on those data breaches because, well, the data was stolen. People, individuals were um, impersonated. The, the, the harms related to that were very widespread. But now with cryptocurrency and the ability you can to use cryptocurrency as a tool for ransomware, suddenly we have this ability to put a, a very specific price on these hacks. And the, and the criminals are doing that. This is, this is really the source of the problem that we're dealing with. And I don't think that that is being addressed is that this is not a problem with cryptocurrency. This is a problem with cybersecurity. It's a problem that has been building up for decades. It's a problem that is that the people in cybersecurity have been well aware of for a very long time. And now it's come to a head. So now we're at this point where we have the choice as people who are in the policy world to determine, well, are we going to focus on the tool that is going to potentially empower an internet-like revolution in finance over the next decade or so and, and pull that back and limit its use and restrict it so that you can't use it effectively? Or are we going to fix the root problem, which is cybersecurity and making sure that the hacks that are leading to these major breaches don't occur in the first place? And I, I just think it's so critical that that point not be lost because if we go towards the path of like regulating cryptocurrency so that it is no longer effective, we are going to miss out on an entire revolution that was similar or if, if potentially even greater to what we've experienced in the internet. Because the ability to have financial inclusion and to eliminate so many intermediaries and inefficiencies in our financial ecosystem is just massive. 
And I'm very hopeful that we'll take that path. Um, well, that's inspiring. Um, <clears throat> we've got one question coming into the Q&A function. I want to mention just to our audience, um, send those questions in. We'll get to them. I want to give each panelist a, a, one more chance to have some, some uh, points, and then we'll move to audience questions. We've got one question, and I'm hoping we'll get more. So please send in your, your questions, and, and uh, they might be informational. They might be challenging. Uh, we'd love to get more of them in here. Um, Mike, do you want to tell us about what you're developing at Espresso Systems and, and how you balance privacy and security and compliance? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, JW. And it's, it's really, um, in many ways, drawing on the work that, that Paul and the folks at Zcash have done, um, for quite a while. And, and in fact, the co-founders, um, uh, are from out of Stanford's cryptography program. And, and one of them, Benedict Blins, uh, was part of the team that created Bulletproofs, which is what Monero is based on actually. Um, but our technology is closer in Zcash, uh, in many ways. And it's really, it's really drawing on that for the optionality. And Paul really well explained, you know, it's an optionality piece. And I think coming out of FinCEN, even uh, it was sort of this is the this is the opportunity, as Paul was laying out, to sort of create technical solutions to policy issues. Um, which, as Kevin was saying, it's going to persist forever. There's going to be a dynamic tension between privacy in a protective sense and anonymity in a, we can't hold accountable people, you know, kidnapping <laughs> sense. And there's always going to be that dynamic tension. And the point is to like constantly go back and forth, but get closer to a better place. And, and a lot of that is debate. And, and this is a, an absolutely key time for engagement, as Kevin said. Um, I think this is, this is, it's really important that we're having these conversations. It, it, you can even imagine the tornado cash situation coming out differently had OFAC and Tornado Cash, whatever that means, but whoever's involved, whether it's the DAO or whomever, um, was in more conversation. And, and the whole point is to not get to a point of sanctions when you can have other ways of, of engaging on that. Um, and so what Espresso Systems is building is configurable privacy um, so that you can have, take any digital asset, wrap it in a zero knowledge uh, private wrapper, but you could have zero knowledge proofs that just say, this person was KYC by Coinbase, period, yes or no, uh, or whomever, and that's it. And we don't do KYC, anything like that. It, actually, the point is to, is to actually move government away from collecting lots of PII, um, personal identifying information, and get to the point where there's a much more frictionless internet, uh, as Paul was talking about, that also secures people and isn't sending your social security number everywhere. Um, but you're allowing parties in different ways to manage their counterparty risk, whether it's, hey, we want this lending pool to actually be under collateralized, not over collateralized. So can we have a threshold score that zero knowledge established of um, prior history and lending and, and credit history that's aggregated, something like that. So it's, it's, it's like Kevin was saying, it's, it's managing risk in different ways and giving people the optionality to do that. That's also protecting them. And that that comes out of much of you know what we were working on at FinCEN at the time, which was actually us saying, not necessarily policymakers uh, that weren't implementing it, but us saying, guys, you know, in 2020, here's an advanced proposed uh, rulemaking on the AML effectiveness. We'd like this to be a lot more effective and not just data dumps of personal information. Uh, and then in 2021, we did a personally led an innovation program 
workshop on privacy, privacy enhancing technology to saying, guys, please specifically calling out zero knowledge proofs and homomorphic encryption. Like, please start using this stuff more. <laughs> um, we don't want just everyone's data everywhere that just creates victims. Um, and I think that's the sort of thing we brought on a digital identity advisor, in fact, to specifically drive digital identity and, and zero knowledge proofs. Uh, like, I think it's important to remember that the mission is not the tool. The mission is preventing exploitation. Data collection is one tool of that, but, but it's not, that doesn't help if everybody's putting everyone's credentials everywhere and, and they're getting exploited. Um, so I think that's what we're doing at Espresso, but it's really carrying the lineage of, of Zcash and the others. And I think it's also why, even though there's going to be this persistent tension, we have to keep having that engagement so everyone's clear. It's not just the extremes, as Kevin was laying out. Like, there's a lot of optionality in there. The um, <clears throat> so I think it was Arthur C. Clarke wrote something about how uh, in the modern age, scientific innovation is indistinguishable from magic. And to me. I feel that when I learned, the more I learned about zero knowledge proof cryptography, um, the ability to verify a piece of information, the veracity of a piece of information without seeing the information. It's I've seen, I've seen Zuko do a, uh, do a kind of a description of it. That looks like a magic trick. looks like he's doing a magic trick. There's a great a 16 Z video of Zuko teaching what zero knowledge proof cryptography is. And, and the, um, uh, it's, a, it, I can't, I can't do it justice, but it's, it's, it's like, a, it's like a cool magic trick. Um, and I love these, these, these applications for compliance issues where it's like, if you show someone your license and the person looking at it can verify that the license is authentic, but they only get to look at a specific piece of information on the license and not anything else, like what state you're from or your last name or, Maybe some, maybe some derived attribute of it derived, without even yes. directly on the license, right? Like yes. you are a U.S. person, but they don't even know anything about you. Um, that's that's offers up so many opportunities to kind of like trade offs. The trade offs Kevin mentioned that we might have had to weigh in the past. We don't have to weigh anymore um, because of the because of the technical improvements. Um, so I want to, uh, we only have one question still. I really want to push y'all need to send in some more questions for our listeners, but we've got one question. Let me read it out and give everybody a chance to speak to it. And this will let us talk a little bit more about maybe even the litigation against tornado cash. Do we know how effective the tornado cash sanctions have been? Can we expect a report from OFAC on that? Um, and I'll add to that that we have had after the sanction and after a lot of noise made about the sanctions by a lot of people, including me. Uh, OFAC did release, I think, some guidance, some Q&A kind of guidance that answered some questions, left a lot of questions still open. Um, so, yeah, how effective have the sanctions been? Um, does anybody have better data than I do on, on use of Tornado Cash? It's obviously gone down quite a lot, but some people are still using it. Um, uh, anybody want to speak to that? Yeah, I don't, I can't speak to that. Maybe other, other people can, but, but I think there's a broader issue. So effectiveness is not just about what's the usage of tornado cash. Um, effectiveness or, you know, or, or the question is, you know, what are the consequences of this action? And um, certainly, you know, one criticism is, uh, you know, as, as, as you've said and others have said, it's, it's a club. It's, it's not just saying, you know, we're going to uh, fine you for violating the law. It's, it's saying anyone who touches tornado cash 
is at risk of um, sanctions, you know, and, and, and a- action against them by the U.S. government. Um, and that's that's a, you know, a very, very strong stuff. Um, and uh, so there's, you know, there certainly are legitimate concerns about chilling effects. I guess I, you know, I, I will say, while I think that's a legitimate concern, you, you look around and, and I don't see um, open source software development projects and blockchain shutting down after this. I, I don't see um, privacy protecting services all saying, "Oh, you know, the, the government is now arrayed against us." Um, I see a lot, of, a lot of activity, a lot of concerns, and including some legal action, like the litigation you're talking about. Um, but you know, it's easy to to say um, to overstate the chilling effects, um, but they're real, and, and we should be concerned about them. The other thing that has happened um, is this has certainly instigated um, private activity to um, avoid touching these um, sanctioned addresses and touching things that go through tornado cash. So, you know, I won't get into the technical details, but, you know, Ethereum now, um, a, a very substantial percentage of Ethereum blocks um, are not mined through the, you know, the, the basic um, process that, that you read about. There's a, a second layer of activity um, that's based around dealing with something called MEV, which is minor or maximable extractable value. Essentially, you know, it's again, why, why is is you know it would take more time, but it's it's an you know an auction mechanism um, around who's going to um, be the one that that actually gets to arrange those blocks. Um, which what it does is it introduces um, a new kind of intermediary process. Into a decentralized system like Ethereum, Ethereum being the you know the, the most valuable and most active blockchain other than Bitcoin, and in some ways much more significant as the foundation for DeFi and all of the decentralized application uh, activity. Um, and um, the uh, the services like um, Flashbots that are involved in this additional layer um, are starting to um, uh, include uh, sanctions checking and include checking for Tornado Cash in blocks. Now, that's not anything that OFAC mandated. That is uh, private actors um, deciding we're going to, maybe on advice of counsel or maybe just as a matter of prudence, uh, implement mechanisms that keep us away from this. Now, there's good and bad there. Again, I'm not saying and this is inherently a great thing. But you know, going back to the point I made earlier, we, we need to have more serious conversations here on both sides. And, and the government certainly uh, in various ways should have been more aggressive um, in the past in, in having those conversations. People like Mike, when they were at, at Treasury, um, were at the forefront of trying to do that, but there were not enough people like him, unfortunately. Um, I think this is a shot across the bow that in some ways has had a salutary effect of getting people to the table, uh, of getting people who are in these these organizations that have generated a huge amount of, uh, of returns and and have significant uh, billions of dollars in some of these treasuries, starting to say let's let's think through. It's it's I I would think um, you know for companies like uh, Paul's and Mike's that are actually trying to address these pro- problems in in a helpful way. I think it's it's presumably caused a lot more interest in in what they're doing. Um and that's not a bad thing. So so again, I wouldn't I wouldn't say and therefore we shouldn't be worried about what's wrong with Tornado Cash, but if you start to look at the implications it goes way beyond what's going to happen to users of this one mixer. Doesn't it also invite useful, helpful, welcome conversations? about the extent of financial surveillance that is embedded in the financial system. Uh, I think that, that you know, one of the difficulties in trying to be a uh, evangelist for privacy is that the current generation just kind of takes for granted that they don't have privacy. When 30 years ago, I remember my parents paying for things with cash all the time in a totally anonymous way. Uh, 
And we've gone toward increasing encroachments on privacy with 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 ever growing um, AML KYC compliance requirements. Those don't there's a one way ratchet to that regime, uh, both in terms of reporting cash transactions that individuals uh, engage in, uh, in terms of reporting by by banks. Um, And, you know, the challenging nature, I think, of, of blockchain transactions is. Uh, if you decentralize, then that kind of centralization assumption behind this entire regime could be challenged, right? I mean, it was all a function of the Supreme Court's third party doctrine. If there's no more third party, or if the third party is a DAO or is an autonomous smart contract code in a in a decentralized exchange, then maybe that doctrine doesn't apply anymore. And then there are substantial parts of KYC AML that go by the wayside. Yeah, if I can just say briefly, then I'll, then I'll let those. I, I don't think there is anyone who has significant experience dealing with our uh, Bank Secrecy Act and illicit finance rules, um, who actually knows how they work uh, and use it, who, who thinks that those are um, good and successful and functional uh, regimes that we would adopt today. So, um, so we, you know, we need to roll up our sleeves and figure out what's a better approach to get to the goals that that presumably we all agree on which are on the one hand dealing with the bad stuff and on the other hand, promoting privacy, given the world that we have today. So that's absolutely necessary. It's, it's a political problem uh, and a challenge, but I, you know, I, I hopefully, you know, these debates will get more people on, on all sides to really engage with that. Yeah. Can I just, can I, no, sorry, go ahead, Paul. No, I, I just want to say real quick, and I, and I feel like I can make a career just underlining things Kevin says, but like, I just want to say FinCEN agrees with Kevin uh, and and not just take my word for it. Like 2020, we put out, Hey, we want this to be more effective. We don't just want your, uh, here's a notice for rules rulemaking. We don't just want all your personal data. Like let's get more effective and let's prioritize. Let's set out priorities to give the industry. And then an RFI uh, in December, 2021, again, like, Hey, we want to modernize the BSA. Like, I think you're, you're always going to have, policymakers and and legislators that see this as a way to 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 message something uh but that isn't necessarily what the folks that are getting it want um and i think that's an important distinction too that and that's why i think that the engagement right now is so critical because we have to find a way to say stop with the like we don't just want more stuff and neither does fincen um we just want to find ways that we're protecting people um but also uh on both sides of it, basically, you know, we want to, we have to be able to find kidnappers. Um, but it doesn't mean we need everybody's social security number at all times. And I think finding that, and then now it's also important, you know, OFAC literally this morning just designated, uh, the Iranian, uh, officials and entities that were involved in internet censorship, um, in Iran and reiterated their general license D2, which was built on the D1 license that said, you can provide all this information technology to Iran, to Iranian citizens, including VPNs and, and privacy and security tools. <laughs> like now is a fresh moment to go into OFAC and say, yes, you know, shout about tornado cash in, in I guess, filings, but to have a really calm uh, conversation. that's like, hey, actually, we're really aligned here in the way that you want to support the, the people of Iran with censorship resistance technology that that allows them to to um, operate under an authoritarian regime and potentially bring democracy. That's what we do. Uh, and we're here to help. Um, and I think finding a way like how we can work together in that and, and show the alignment, too, is it's a critical moment. That's a fascinating contrast, because I've seen some OFAC guidance 
suggesting that firms should be very wary of anybody using a VPN, ooh, who's accessing their site, and they should use that as a risk factor. Um, so, I, you know, one thing to note about just the legality of OFAC's actions, I could see one strategy being, they say, you know what? We know we're going to get sued and we know we're eventually going to lose in a couple of years, but let's just do it anyway. Because, you know, the thing about privacy, most privacy tools is it's about the anonymity set. The more, the, the only way to hide private transactions is to hide among a large group of people. So we'll scare away lots of people from using Tornado Cash. And therefore, you know, if you're the only actor using, major actor using a, a privacy tool, you're no longer private. You no longer have privacy because the anonymity set in which you hide of other transactions will be scared away, will be scared off. So they achieve what they want and they don't care that they lose in court a few years later. That might be a cynical approach, a cynical view, but it's one that I've heard from quite a few sanctions lawyers. Um, and speaking of anonymity set, the other question I have, this is, this will be kind of my last question. And I'll, I'll let panelists have a last word uh, after answering these. Um, we've talked a lot about flexibility in terms of transparency versus shielded in terms of the various options Mike has. Is there a trade-off there? Are flexible privacy protocols um, facing a trade-off? In other words, a lot of folks in the Monero community look at Zcash and they say the option for transparent transactions decreases the anonymity set and therefore limits the privacy power of the technology. Uh, a lot of the diehard Bitcoin people kind of have the same view about the stuff that Mike is developing. Um, so is there that trade-off between uh, flexibility and maintaining a solid anonymity set for privacy? So answers to that and then final words from every panelist. Does anybody want to jump in on that one? I'll just point out that we are not strictly about providing privacy. We're about providing economic freedom. We're, we're about providing consent and choice to the users. And I think having options is a good thing. Uh, there is obviously a certain amount of, of activity you need to have in an anonymity and anonymity set. I'll get that number right in a minute to uh, to be uh, effective. But um, important user choice and economic freedom are, are the goal here, and I don't think we should ever lose sight of that. Yeah, it's the same. Same. I mean, I, I think that's very well said. Like at Espresso Systems too. Like the point, there is Monero. It already exists. It you know, great. Use it. Like this is this is to have greater optionality um, for people to make their own choices. I mean, it, it's a if it's about personal sovereignty and personal choice, you should have the choice how much to disclose, when, how much counterparty risk you're up for, um, and we and and that brings more people. More optionality brings more people into the anonymity set, as you say. Um, than just having like the seven hardcore people that are like, I don't want the government to know what my latte choice is. Like the government doesn't care what your latte choice is, but we need enough people in the, uh, in the overall set um, uh, for privacy and optionality that, that, that does grow it enough so that there's also, you know, there are also voters. <laughs> uh, any um, last words? Final thoughts you didn't get to elaborate I, I just wanted I, I to, to know what Mike's watch day choice is, but I guess we'll find that out after the panel. But um, so a couple of things. One is I, you know, I would encourage people to look at the executive 
executive order that came out of the Biden administration in March on what they called responsible innovation around digital assets, which is much broader than this set of issues, but um, was, I think, a, a salutary effort to get uh, agencies across the federal government to engage with these questions. And then there was a, a framework that, that came out um, about a month or so. Um, it's a starting point, and um, there's certainly reasons for criticizing um, some of those approaches. But, um, you know, what I find when I talk to people in government is um, you have a few who say um, this this stuff is all evil. We want to shut it down. They're in the minority. Um, you have a lot more, though, who say, look, you know, if I'm in an agency whose mission is to interdict uh, financial crime, then that's what I want to focus on is how do we do that? Uh, and, yeah, I care about privacy, too. But but tell me how my legitimate problem and my mission can get addressed. Um, and I think we're moving forward. Um, and, and, you know, the private sector has come to the fore a lot, too, in, in terms of not just saying, well, you know, the whole point of this is anonymity and the whole point of this is to get government out. And so, therefore, it's not an issue. I think we're having a lot healthier conversations like the one that we're having now that are that are talking through what those issues are, but there's still a long way to go. Um, and the last thing I'll, I'll throw out at the end is, um, you know, perhaps controversially, um, if you ask me what is the most important um, privacy protective financial technology in the world today, I would say the answer is China's ECNY, their central bank digital currency, um, because it actually is used by 100 million people already and has a mechanism for providing transactional privacy. I can be certain um, with certain transactions that the counterparty, the, uh, the merchant, the uh, site I'm dealing with does not know my personally identifiable information, which I can't do with any system on the internet today. Now, of course, um, the People's Bank of China, the Chinese Communist Party can get access to all my information. I'm not advocating that, that China is more privacy protective. But what China has done that we have not yet done in this country is think through these issues and design a system that meets their societal objectives. Our societal objectives are different. We should absolutely be more privacy protective. I'm totally in favor of that. Um, but if we don't um, raise this to the level of debating about where at the margins we make these hard choices, um, then we're not going to have a seat at the table. Um, and so I, I would encourage people to sort of get beyond the, the extremism on both sides and to try and work through things. Wow, that was a twist, Kevin. I didn't see that coming. That was good. <laughs> so um, <clears> hey, <throat> I, I just wanted to point out, I think that it was great that we focused on the silver lining in this discussion. And that is that this is an opportunity to take a hard look at all of the regimes around financial surveillance, KYC, AML, as well as OFAC. Some of what I've seen about OFAC recently, I think is really interesting. And you know, I don't know that I've ever thought about it before this happened, but OFAC is, and the, the sanctions that they have available to them are, in, are just amazingly blunt and powerful. And if you think about how that relates to our American values, there's really a very, there's just a massive inconsistency there. And the fact that we can sanction and an entire country of millions and millions of people such that I cannot transact with the good citizens of some of, some of those good citizens, perfectly good people. And I might have a reason to transact with them. Who knows if I could, but we can't because the entire country is under sanction. That is just, um, a little bit hard to believe that that's the kind of sanction that we would put in place in this day and age. Uh, I think that, you know, what Eric Voorhees 
wrote just very recently in his moneyandstate.com blog about OFAC, I thought was very enlightening. So I, I think people should take a look at that and just let's all kind of take a hard look at these issues and, and try to find something better going forward. And on that note, we have unfortunately run against our hard time stop today, but I would like to thank our, our panelists for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I would like to thank our audience for joining us and, and participating in the conversation. You can submit questions or other feedback at, to, at, by email to info at fed.stock.org. And be sure to check your emails and our website for other information about upcoming programming. With that, thank you all for being with us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.